Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us. If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as we just read. Uh, we will be finishing it. This is our 58th and, uh, and final uh, sermon in our exploration of 1 Corinthians. And as you turn there, I want to tell a story from my uh, childhood. So I grew up about 30 minutes uh, east of Houston. For most of my childhood, my dad worked in Houston at the University of Houston. And, uh, and so he would have a, a bit of a commute in order to get uh, to and from work. And so one day he is driving home from work. And according to him, he's just minding his own business, probably praying or singing worship or something like that. And out of nowhere, again, according to him, out of nowhere, this guy starts road raging on him. And uh, so this guy is tailgating him. My dad would speed up, this guy would speed up, my dad would slow down, this guy would slow down, my dad would uh, uh, move over, this guy would move over, and then the guy starts actually uh, slamming into my dad on the highway. And, uh, and so my dad is freaking out, has no idea what to do. This is before road rage is even a thing. This is, you know, the 80s, and uh, so, you know, people aren't familiar with it, and so he has no idea what's going on, but he just realizes, I don't wanna take this guy, you know, to my house where my kids are, and uh, so he takes the first exit off of uh, Interstate 10 uh, into uh, Baytown, my hometown, the first sort of exit uh, there. And he just starts driving randomly. And this guy is, again, on him, and he's trying to, to knock him off into a, a ditch. And so my dad pulls in the first neighborhood that he sees, and he's looking for someone. He's just looking for a crowd of people or looking for some people that are outside because he figures there's safety in numbers. And, uh, and unfortunately... He pulls into this neighborhood, and it's like a ghost town, right? There's like tumbleweeds that are just kind of going by, and there's no one outside. And my dad is just, you know, going 60 miles per hour through this neighborhood trying to find someone because he has no idea what this guy is going uh, to do to him. And so finally he turns on the street, and he looks off in the distance, and he sees uh, a guy and a couple of other people out in uh, this guy's front yard. And so my dad just floors it and is going like 60 when he gets into this guy's driveway, and what happens next, you have to wait to the end of the, uh, the sermon to hear. Because endings are important, right? We tend to think, I think, oftentimes when we think of Paul's sermons, we tend to think of them as being filler. We tend to think of them as being kind of inconsequential. We, don't want, we want to kind of get over it. We want to go ahead and move into Matthew. We're excited about being in a new book, and so there's nothing really here. It's just like dessert or something like that. It's not actually filling and when in reality, there's meat still left on the bone. This passage that we're talking about today is just as inspired, just as inerrant, just as authoritative as everything else that we've talked about in 1 Corinthians. In fact, what we'll see in our passage today is actually a summary of many of the major themes that we've explored as we've walked through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's kind of like whenever you get to a series finale, if you remember uh, you know this, these grand series finales. They don't have them as much uh, these days. They're not as uh, like these national sort of events. Like if you remember when Dallas went off the air or MASH went off the air or Seinfeld or something like that. Kind of the whole country was aware of that because we didn't have Netflix and we didn't have ways to do all these binging. And so it, it's kind of like a good series finale is going to kind of recap 
a lot of the themes of the series. You're going to see characters maybe that you haven't seen in a couple of seasons. They're going to come back and uh, all of that. So that's kind of what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians today. We're going to see this recapping, this summarization of, of many of the main motifs and themes that we've explored uh, as we walk through it. So as we read this, my encouragement to you is that you wouldn't check out, that you wouldn't already be thinking about Matthew. Uh, trust me, next week's going to be hard because it's, it's just genealogy. And, uh, and so we'll have to learn how do we actually build up endurance because that also is inspired and inerrant and authoritative. But there's grace for us in our passage today. There's grace for us this week in our passage this week. Next week's text is for next week. Just like the Bible talks about today's grace is for today and tomorrow's grace is for tomorrow. And, uh, and so let's ask God to give us that grace uh, now. Ask you first just to uh, to pray for yourself that the Lord would give you um, eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would uh, have your affections and your attention awakened. <coughs> Excuse me. And then would you pray that for those around you as well? That the Lord would give us collectively hearts that would be quick to hear and to heed his word. And then lastly, would you pray for me? So Father, I, I, uh, I confess that as I read your word, that there are oftentimes passages that I just kind of want to neglect. I want to skip over. I want to kind of skim or summarize and not really dive down more deeply into. And so I pray that we wouldn't do that this morning, that we would know uh, that your word for us this morning is good and profitable for us for teaching and, and correction and uh, reproof and so forth. And so I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that you would convict us, that you would comfort those who needed to be comfort um, and confront those who needed to be uh, confronted for their sin. And so we love you, and we're grateful for your love for us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look at verses 13 through 14 of 1 Corinthians 16. It says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. One of the themes that we've seen throughout our exploration of 1 Corinthians is that the church uh, in particular, the church there in, uh, in Corinth has been seduced. They've been seduced by all kinds of Greco-Roman cultural uh, assumptions. In particular, they've been seduced, uh, seduced by the idea that, uh, that rhetoric and that style is more important than the actual substance. So uh, the speaker's presentation is more important than their actual uh, message. They were kind of overly impressed by the speaker's rhetorical skill and they're less impressed by how well that speaker was presenting divine revelation. And at, at times we've seen Paul actually uses this to his advantage. At times he actually uses some of the assumptions of, uh, of Greco-Roman sort of rhetoric in order to make a point. So throughout 1 Corinthians we've seen examples where, where Paul is actually going to use the assumptions of the Corinthians against them. And he kind of does this in our conclusion as well. In particular, we're going to see that Paul is going to leverage a style of Greco-Roman rhetoric in which uh, one of the common themes that you see 
uh, in Greco-Roman rhetoric is that they would typically conclude a letter by summarizing certain major themes of that letter or of that speech. And then they would provide this sort of final passionate appeal to the heart of the reader. Right? So there would be this summary of these major themes and there would be an appeal to the heart of the reader. And that's what we see in our text. Those summaries of the major themes throughout the letter, they take the form in 1 Corinthians, they take the form of these short, choppy exhortations. And that's actually typical of most of Paul's letters. If you read most of Pauline literature you'll see this same sort of idea that towards the end of a book, he generally is going to list these a handful of commands without giving a whole lot of explanation or a whole lot of context. What we see in most of Paul's letters, in the bulk of the letter, is that anytime Paul's going to give an imperative, he's going to give a command, there's going to be a whole lot of indicative there. What's an indicative? It's like a description. Uh, so an imperative is a command, do this. An indicative is a, is a statement that is, this has already been done. In light of God's love, indicative, therefore go and, and do likewise. That's an imperative. So that's how Paul typically writes. But towards the end, you don't see that indicative. You don't see as much uh, of the explanation. Instead, you just see the commands. And so he lists one command after uh, uh, another. And so he does that here by writing, be watchful, stand firm, be strong, and so forth. And that's kind of the characteristic signature that you know that you're moving towards the end of the letter. All right? It's kind of like um, being on a phone call and signaling. I think everyone has a different way to signal that that conversation is over. All right? Maybe you say something like, I got to go now, or that's all I know, or something like that. Whatever it might be, that, that's what these series of exhortations mean in Paul's letters. They are a signal that the end is nigh. So let's look at each of them in order. The first is to be Watchful. This could also be translated as be on guard. The imagery there is, uh, is someone who's on watch while uh, some are asleep or they're otherwise unaware. So it's kind of a guard. You, you think of a night watch watching over others. This, and this is particularly fitting within the context of the book of 1 Corinthians. When you read this uh, particular command that we would be watchful, the command begins to take on some color. If you read that within the context of the book of 1 Corinthians, think of all the dangers that are facing this particular church. Right? Be on guard. Be on guard against the, the leavening influence of cultural presuppositions that we've talked about. Be on guard against the subtle drift of false doctrine and of syncretization that is the, trying to blend together the Christian worldview with these pagan, heathen worldviews. Be on guard against the temptation to judge each other according to social status, according to race, according to socioeconomic class. Be on guard against the corrupting influence of so-called Christians who would pervert the gospel by pursuing sin unrepentantly. Be on guard against the temptation for yourself to be seduced by sexual morality or by idolatry or by greed. In other words, be on guard lest you are seduced by the desires of the flesh and the currents of these pagan cultures that considers truth and gospel to be folly rather than the wisdom of God. How can you be watchful? Well, by knowing and loving truth. That's the primary thing in the book of 1 Corinthians. The primary way that you are to be uh, watchful is by knowing and recognizing and loving and obeying the truth, by being able to distinguish truth from error, worldly wisdom from godly wisdom. 
In addition to that, you're also watchful by being engaged in deep and rich community. You watch my back, I watch your back. And then in addition to that, by practicing all of the spiritual disciplines that we're talking about all semester in theological equipping class. That's a means of being watchful. Those are all means of, of knowing these potential perils and then uh, guarding against them. So that's the first one, be watchful. The second thing he says is stand firm in the faith. Think back to the beginning of chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Notice the language there of standing fast and holding fast. Then at the end of chapter 15, we read this, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, that idea of being steadfast or being immovable. Perhaps you note the, the, the overlap between the previous command to be on guard, to be watchful and to be on guard overlaps with the command to stand firm in the faith, to stand fast, to hold fast. What are you guarding against? When the Bible says to be watchful, when it says to be on God, what are you guarding against? What are you watching against? Well, you're, you're guarding against being taken captive. You're guarding against surrendering to false doctrine or heresy. You're guarding against capitulating to sin. You're guarding against surrendering or retreating. Jared used this illustration last week, but I think it's, uh, it's really helpful to, to repeat. Consider how inspiring it has been a little bit depressing, but also inspiring that it's been to see the example of, uh, of Ukrainians that are standing firm in the midst of uh, what I would consider to be unjust aggression, right? Not just against any aggressor, but literally one of the three most powerful armies on the planet. So if you're an Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian there's very little assurance that they can actually resist long term. They have hope, but their hope is, in a lot of ways, somewhat wishful thinking. Now compare that, though, to the, uh, the situation of the Christian in a spiritual sense, what 1 Corinthians is talking about. How much more should we be willing to stand firm knowing that victory is assured? We read that a couple of weeks ago. Death is already defeated and it's going to be destroyed. Sin is already defeated and one day it will be no more. This wisdom has already been revealed to be naked folly. So the, this call to stand fast is also this stark reminder that worldliness and sin, they aren't passive. They're not inert. The image I always think of when I think of the, the, the allure, the pool of sin and, uh, and of culture and, and all these presuppositions and so forth is if you ever go to Schlitterbahn, or some other uh, water park. And they always typically have this, what they call a lazy river. Or what do you do in a lazy river? You just float, right? You don't really do anything, but you're moving. You're not doing anything at all. You're sitting in a tube or something like that. And you're, as a result of not doing anything whatsoever, you're moving. It's unlike sitting in a, you know, a swimming pool that's not moving at all. You might be able to stay relatively stationary. That's not what happens in a lazy river. And that's the allure, that's the pull of sin, that's the pull of worldliness, uh, and so forth. It is moving you. There is a direction to it. There is a current to it. And unless you're actively paddling against that current, 
you'll drift. There's this gravitational pull. It is a natural law that exists. So Paul says to stand firm. He says to anchor yourself. Anchor yourself to something that's immovable, something that's unchanging. Anchor yourself to the words of this book in 1 Corinthians. Anchor yourself to all of Scripture. Anchor yourself to truth and to the gospel. And ultimately, anchor yourself to God himself. So he says to be watchful. Then he says to stand firm in the faith. And then he next says, act like men. You might also translate that as be courageous. If you're reading from a translation other than the ESV, it might say, actually, be courageous. And I actually think that's, that's a better translation of what Paul means because this, this Greek word is used throughout the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In a number of places, that word is translated where the Old Testament might say something like be strong and courageous. The word there, courageous, is the same word that's used here. Uh, uh, it's translated by the ESV as act like men. It just so happens that, uh, that in the ancient world, certain virtues were more connected to one gender or another. And courage was a, a virtue that was more connected to masculinity than it was to femininity. Why is that? Because men were the ones who would go off to war. Men were the ones who would have to protect against the wild beasts. Men were the ones who would stand guard. Men were the ones who served in the army and, uh, and so forth. So courage was seen as this more masculine trait. That absolutely doesn't mean that women aren't courageous. That's not the point whatsoever. Just like the fact that women tend to be more nurturing doesn't mean that men can't nurture. Right? It's just that certain virtues are more connected with certain uh, genders. Regardless, I don't think Paul's point here has much at all to do with gender. I don't think Paul's primary point here is to be like a man rather than a woman. That's not what he's saying. This is addressed to men and women. His point is instead... To be like a man rather than a child. That's Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians. That's this, the, the theme that we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians. Think back to 1 Corinthians 13, 11. We'll put it up on the screen. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. All right, now, no offense to you if your child happens to be perfect but children in general, again, not your angelic child, but children in general tend to be marked by certain characteristics that aren't great. They tend to be self-centered. They tend to be immature by definition. Right? You don't probably, hopefully you don't teach your kid how to bite others. That's not something they learn from you. right? You don't go and bite your spouse and your kid goes, that's how I'm going to get my way. Hopefully, if it is, come and talk to us. We probably you could use some marriage counseling or something like that. But they just do it. it it's innate. It's instinctual, right? As Proverbs says, that, that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline uh, drives it from them. It's bound up in their hearts. It's who they are by nature, right? In the, in the great uh, debate in the, uh, the fifth century between Augustine and Pelagius on the nature of humanity, Augustine said, humanity is by nature children of wrath. Pelagius said humanity is basically a blank slate. They can incline towards the good and incline towards evil. We'll see. The church has universally said Pelagius is wrong. That's actually heresy. And we Christians hold that, uh, that children and all of humanity by nature is inclined towards sin. And so childishness is the deep default. That's the default. 
And it's only by discipline that it's overcome. And with childishness often comes this irrational fear. When you're a child, you're scared there's something under the bed or something in the closet or you're afraid of the dark or you're afraid of strangers or whatever it might be. With age and with experience comes this courage, courage to overcome those fears. So be courageous. Obviously, courage will be necessary if you're going to do what he just said, to be watchful. For you to stand watch while others are asleep, that takes courage. For you to stand firm when everyone else is capitulating, that takes courage. Not only courage, but also strength. He says, be strong. Again, bear in mind this common Old Testament refrain that says, be strong and courageous. It's part of the reason why I think that Paul's not talking about gender. Instead, he's talking about this virtue of courage. I think Paul's alluding to that idea here, be strong and courageous. That's what the, uh, the Israelites were commanded as they enter into the promised land and so forth. And that seems to be the opposite of the Corinthians' current condition. They're not being courageous. They're not being strong. They're far too lenient. They're far too lax. They're far too, quote, uh, tolerant with certain persons. They tolerate the guy who's sleeping with his, fa- uh, uh, with his father's wife. They're tolerant with people who are going to see temple prostitutes. They're tolerant with people who are denying the resurrection. And that tolerance isn't strength. It takes strength to confront others in their sin. And that's what Paul is uh, is requiring here. Now, obviously, this isn't talking about physical strength here. Paul isn't concerned with your bench press or your biceps. And so this is about fortitude of spirit. But a couple of weeks ago in theological equipment class, we did see that there is a relationship that that exists between your physical and your spiritual discipline. If you want to get stronger physically, you have to push yourself. You have to tax yourself. You have to burden your body. You have to actually make yourself hurt in order to get stronger. And the same is true when it comes to spiritual strength. And that takes just as much work. That takes just as much effort, just as much striving, just as much Discipline. That's why we're doing an entire semester on discipleship or on applied theology where we're studying spiritual disciplines and so forth. Paul says to be strong. And in order for you to be strong, that assumes that you're taking steps in order to be strengthened. Right? Most days when I wake up, it doesn't really matter how many pull-ups I can do. Right? There's not a lot of uh, circumstances in my life. I read for a living, Right? There's not a lot of circumstances in my life where it's like, man, I have to be able to do a pull-up right now. There could be. There could be a day where I'm out you know, hiking or something and I fall off a mountain and I have to pull myself back up. But most of the time, that's not the case. Likewise, maybe a lot of the temptations that the Corinthians are facing, maybe you don't feel most of the time. Maybe most days aren't so overwhelming that you're tempted to have an affair or you're tempted to look at pornography, or you're tempted to steal from your employer, or you're tempted to give up on the faith. But perhaps that day is coming, and if you aren't already prepared for it, if you aren't already spiritually strengthened, you'll be overwhelmed. By its very uh, nature, you can't build strength and endurance in the moment. It takes a long, slow process of discipline. So when it says to be strong, that means, that that implies that there is this process, that you are to devote yourself to being strengthened. 
to devote yourself to prayer, to devote yourself to fasting, to reading scripture, to community, and on and on, all the things we're talking about this semester. And then lastly, he says, let all that you do be done in love. This reminds us of chapter 13, the love chapter, right? The wedding chapter. Love is at the center of the book, almost spatially, certainly theologically. Why? Because love is the remedy for all that ails the church. The Beatles were actually right, right? All you need is love. So if you love God's word, you'll understand godly wisdom. You'll be able to distinguish it from worldly folly. If you love God and others, you'll know how to deal with unrepentant sin within the church. If you love God and others, you won't sue them like in chapter 6 or eat all the food there is for communion like in chapter 11. In essence, in Pauline theology, love is the panacea. It's the cure-all. It's the silver bullet for all that ails the, the myriad problems facing not only Corinth, but Parkway and every other local church. Love is the prescription against gossip and slander and mistrust and misperception and pride and envy and everything else that infects, against, uh, infects the church. What does Jesus say is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? It's the great command. To love God and to love others. That's the fulfillment. That's the summation of the law. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean do what you feel is most loving. We've seen that throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, that oftentimes what we feel is most loving or what we think is most loving has been infiltrated, has been infected by worldly presuppositions and so forth. In reality, oftentimes true love is painful. When you love your kids, you spank them. When you love your friends, you rebuke them. When you love God, it costs you some temporal pleasures. Genuine love isn't always comfortable. It isn't always convenient. Which is, again, why this command is embedded among these other calls, these other commands to be strong and to be courageous and stand firm and so forth. So that's the first part of this uh, epistolary conclusion. These series of short, succinct exhortations to godliness that kind of summarize and, and, and put a, a bow on uh, the entire letter. But let's keep going, verses 15 through 18. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. So let's talk about a few of the details in this text, and then we'll kind of summarize the main point. First, some details. This is actually the second time that we've heard about this guy named Stephanus. All right? His full name is actually Stephan Forrest or something like that. But we met him all the way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 16 Paul's listing out people he baptized. He said, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Why am I mentioning the fact that he was mentioned way back then? Well, notice the reference to his household in chapter 1 and the fact that it says his household was baptized. Whether you know it or not, this is often used as a, an argument for infant baptism. Stephanus' household was baptized, so there's an assumption that it must have included at least an infant or two. So that's one of the arguments for pedo-baptism or infant baptism. But notice what chapter 16 explicitly says. It explicitly says that the household 
was composed of converts. They were the first converts, all right? In fact, almost every passage in the Bible that talks about, quote, household baptisms says something really similar, implying that all those who were baptized were already saved. So this isn't a good argument for, for pedo-baptism, all right? By the way, it's an argument from silence at best. By the way, we have an entire booklet on this subject of baptism, and we talk about things like infant baptism. It's at theparkwaychurch.com backslash baptism. You're welcome to check that out. That's not the point of this verse. It has nothing to do with that. But since some have misused the example of Stephanus, uh, I thought it worth mentioning. But it says that they are the first converts. Not only are they the first converts, but that word that's translated as first literally means first fruits, right? What's the first fruits? It's the first of something where there's more to come. So it's not merely saying that they're the first converts. It's saying the first with the expectation that there's more. So they're the first of many is sort of the, uh, the idea. They were kind of the seed uh, from which the church in, uh, in Corinth grew. So that's Stephanus. What about Fortunatus? Uh, and Achaicus. By the way, different pronunciations of, uh, of these names. doesn't really matter how you pronounce them. Um, what about these two guys, Fortunatus and Achaicus? We don't know much about them except the fact that they tend to be nicknames. Right? You have any, you have any friends that do the whole, that was my nickname in high school bit? All right, that's one of my favorite things. All right, uh, you say, you know, be careful. That's a real hot plate. And I'll go, hey, Hot Plate was my nickname in high school. That's one of my, literally I don't go a week without making that joke. And uh, it's, it's, you know, 30% of the time it's funny. And then the rest of the time it just, I think it's funny. And that's all that matters. So, uh, you know, why am I doing that? Because I'm being biblical, right? Nicknames are in the Bible. All right. Nicknames are actually pretty common in Greco-Roman culture and even in Jewish culture. Right. Even in the Bible. Remember Peter? What's his nickname? He's the rock, Right. Before Dwayne Johnson, there's Peter. <laughs> or what about uh, uh, John and James? Anyone remember what their nickname was? Sons of, uh, of Thunder or Boanerges, right? And, uh, and so nicknames are really common in the Bible. You can probably guess what Fortunatus means. What do, you, what do you want to guess? Fortunate or lucky, right? You call them lucky. What about Achaicus? Well, Achaicus means someone who is from Achaia, which is a Roman province that covers most of Greece. So this name was probably given to him outside of Achaicus. It wouldn't make any sense if he was in Achaia and, uh, and he was given that nickname. His nickname is probably derived from the fact that he was from there. It's kind of like calling someone Tex or Oki or uh, Ossi or something like that. And most scholars believe that Fortunatus and Achaicus were probably lower class probably freedmen, that is, former slaves who had been uh, freed. But that's about all we know about them. Neither of them are mentioned elsewhere in, uh, in Scripture. Those are the details. Now let's look at the bigger picture. Within that bigger picture of the meaning of the text, we see these two commands that Paul's going to give. Uh, and, uh, and we also see a picture of Paul's bigger response. Paul's response. Let's look at Paul's response first. Notice what he writes. He writes, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Now, if you recall, we've mentioned this a number of times, but Paul is actually writing this letter in response to a letter that he had received from Corinth. So Paul has already received a letter 
And he's writing this as a response to their letter. And that letter was probably carried from Corinth, from the church in Corinth, to Ephesus, where Paul was staying, by these three guys. That's probably why he mentions them in particular. Fortunatus and Achaicus and Stephanus were probably the letter carriers who, carriers who had brought him uh, the letter uh, from Corinth to Ephesus. And Paul was really glad to see him, uh, to see them. In fact, it says he rejoiced. His spirit was refreshed. What does it mean that they made up for your absence? Well, let me give you an illustration. There are a couple of types. I'm not a big crier, right? Jared cries all the time. I'm not a big crier. He's, he's probably healthier than I am in that sense. But there are a couple of things that do make me cry. One of them are uh, videos that uh, where like a baby gets a cochlear implant. And they hear like their mother or dad's voice the first time. I, I just lose it, all right? The other one is uh, anytime like a soldier comes home and he surprises his kids or something like that. Those kind of things really break me. That, that sudden extreme joy that you can see there, the type of joy that overflows into tears. And that's kind of what's happening here. If you recall, Paul has a particular fondness for Corinth. I think that's true of all of the churches that Paul planted, but I think there is a soft spot, uh, soft spot in his place, in, in his heart in particular, for Corinth. He spent 18 months laboring there. He loves that church. He misses the people of that church. Right? He, he would have loved for the entire church to come and visit him in Ephesus. But he got the next best thing. He got this handful of representatives. Imagine you have this really big family, this, uh, this really big family. You have a whole lot of siblings uh, and so forth, and you're super close, but you haven't seen them in a while because there's been like a global pandemic. And then one or two of your siblings come into town and the, and, the, and the sense of joy that you have, not only the joy of seeing them, but in a sense you, you, you kind of see your whole family. There's a sense in which they kind of stand in for the entire family. That's kind of what's going on here. In other words, Paul's response shows that his, his theology hasn't just remained dormant in his mind. It's invaded his heart. The idea of the church as a family, which is an idea we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians, isn't just some abstract fact that he happens to know so that he can win trivial pursuit or something like that. It's this beloved reality that he feels. He rejoices. He's refreshed. And then he gives these two commands. He says to be subject to and recognize such people, in particular those who are devoting themselves to the service of the saints. And this would have been a very counterintuitive, countercultural thing for him to have said. When you think about this from the perspective of a typical Greco-Roman perspective, and remember what I said about these three guys, at least two of them most likely are, are lower-class former slaves. They aren't at the top rung of the social ladder. They're towards the bottom. And yet he says to give recognition and to subject yourself to them. So yet again, we see how the gospel not only transcends, but it confronts. It confronts, it challenges, it rebukes the existing cultural expectations and assumptions. Culture would say, you're better than them. They're lower than you. And yet Paul inverts that. He shows how the gospel is going to be this, this inversion uh, and it's going to confront the, the, the existing social uh, order. The first becomes last, the last become first. Jews and Gentiles, these, uh, these groups that are separated by a wall of separation have been reconciled. The rich and the poor share a common meal and so forth. Let's keep going. 
Next verses, 19 and 20. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa. Together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So here we have some more traditional greetings. I want to answer two questions here. First, who are Aquila and Prissa? And then second, what's a holy kiss? All right? You guys are just waiting for the holy kiss part. What, first, uh, who are Priscilla or, uh, Prissa and Aquila? They're actually mentioned quite a bit in the New Testament. And so we know actually quite a bit about them. In addition to 1 Corinthians, they pop up in Acts and in Romans and also in 2 Timothy. Sometimes we see them, like here, as Aquila and Prissa. But most of the time, it's, uh, her name is not listed as Prissa, but instead as Priscilla. That Illa uh, ending is like adding an I, uh, an I-E or a Y to the end of Bill or Jack or something and you get Billy or Jackie. It's kind of a term of endearment. A, a, a diminution. Interestingly, one of the uh, uh, of the five places where this uh, couple is mentioned together in Scripture, this is actually the only one where Aquila is mentioned first. In all the other cases, Prissa or Priscilla is mentioned first, and that's really rare in uh, in Greek literature. oftentimes the husband would be mentioned first. And again, he is here, but in the four other places where they're mentioned uh, together, it's the reverse. She's actually mentioned first. That's really rare. So that probably indicates that she's somehow more prominent. All right? Maybe she's she's, uh, more wealthy. Maybe she's from a famous family, whatever it might be. We don't really know. It's just speculation. If you ever hear someone say, this is why she's more prominent, they don't know. And so it's just speculation. All we know is that somehow, for some reason, she's probably more well-known. Maybe she was from there and everybody knew her, whereas Aquila had, had uh, you know, been from somewhere else or whatever. What else do we know about them? Well, we know that they were Jewish converts who had lived in Rome. At least at some point they were in Rome. They were in Rome until the emperor Claudius had closed down the Jewish synagogue and expelled all the Jews in 49 AD. There was a a big disturbance, uh, a nearly um, a, a riot uh, in Rome over clashes between Jews and Christians over the question of Christianity and the Messiah. And, uh, and so Claudius, uh, the emperor at the time, he doesn't uh, distinguish Christianity as being an entirely different religion from Judaism. He thinks these are just two Jewish sects and they can't get along. And, uh, and so he just expels all the Jews from, uh, from Rome and closes down the synagogue. And so from there, Aquila and Priscilla, they actually settled in Corinth. They settled in Corinth, and they were of the same trade as Paul. They were leather workers. They were, uh, they were tent makers. So uh, in Acts 18, we read that Paul actually lived with them while he labored in, uh, in Corinth. So he probably worked in the same shop with them and had evangelistic opportunities uh, doing that. And so whenever Paul leaves Corinth, what's interesting is that Aquila and Prissa uh, actually accompany him. And they go with him to Ephesus, which is where he is when he's writing this letter. While they're in Ephesus, they also met Apollos, and they helped him to better understand the gospel. So again, they're a very influential sort of power couple. They were also probably fairly well off. We, we, we can surmise that not only from the fact that they uh, were able to move around quite a bit, which was kind of a luxury reserved for the upper class, but also from the fact that the church in Ephesus was able to meet in their house. 
Now, this wasn't a mega church, right? This wasn't 10,000 people or something like that. But still, it might have been 100, 150, 200 or so people. So they probably had quite a big house, quite a large house in order to enable them. So what is it, though, that Paul's doing? Why, why is he mentioning the churches in Asia? Why is he mentioning Aquila and mentioning uh, Priscilla or Prissa? Well, in part, he does so to help the, the Corinthians to remember that they're part of this larger family. If you recall, one of the problems in Corinth is this tendency that they have to think that they've arrived at some sort of special knowledge of the gospel, to distinguish themselves from other churches. They think that the gospel is unique to their own teachers, to their own preachers, to their own prophets. They have a tendency to kind of divorce themselves from the larger universal church. So these greetings kind of ground them. They bring them back to reality. They function as this reminder and this encouragement to keep in mind the global body. If you weren't here for theological equipping today, that's actually what we talked about. Jared talked about missions. One of the goal of missions is for us ourselves to be reminded of the reality that we're not this um, you know, insular little isolated community, that there are other pockets of community throughout the uh, the world. So that's part of what Paul's doing here is he's getting their focus off of themselves. Uh, the, the Corinthians are like, you know, narcissists, right? If you remember the, the, the myth of, of narcissists, he's this guy who stares into this pool of water and ultimately dies as a result of it because he's so infatuated with themselves. That's kind of what the Corinthians are. So Paul's taking his, their eyes off of that. Now, what is it about a holy kiss here? First thing you need to know, this is not something erotic. This is not something sexual. But like anything, it can be abused. I thought this was really interesting uh, in my studies uh, on this passage. The early church father, Clement of Alexandria, warns against a, quote, shameless use of the kiss. Or even better, uh, the second century uh, Christian Athenagoras, he warns against, quote, an evil thought, which leads you to a second kiss because the first was so enjoyable. All right? <laughs> That's gross, right? That's weird. That shouldn't happen in church. In Paul's usage, though, the holy kiss is about as erotic as a handshake or an appropriate side hug, you know, would be today. It was a sign of platonic affection. It was a sign of welcome. Every culture has their own uh, way of expressing those virtues uh, of an affectionate sort of welcome and, uh, and, and a sign of love and, uh, and so forth. So the kiss that he talks about here, that's the wineskin. The affection, the welcome, that's the wine. The wineskin can change from culture to culture, but the wine can't change. So an appropriate response to this uh, that is contextualized to our culture would be give each other a hug, give each other a handshake, give each other a high five, maybe even do one of these, you know? If you weren't looking, you're like, what did you just do? You missed it, all right? So the actual symbol, though, that's less important than what's symbolized. The kiss itself is not what Paul's commanding. Paul's commanding what the kiss symbolizes, which is affection and warmth and welcome and those kinds of things, love and unity and genuine concern. So if you kind of want to strip this command of this social symbol, if you want to get to the underlying transcultural command, it's this, greet one another warmly and sincerely. That's what Paul's commanding us today. He's not commanding us to necessarily kiss each other. He is commanding us to greet one another warmly 
and sincerely. Whatever social symbol you choose to express that should symbolize that underlying principle. So greet one another like family members, like beloved friends. That's what you are. So there's this theological concern here that you understand who you actually are, and that should drive the way that you consider each other. Let's keep going. 21 through 24. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Notice something interesting has happened here. Paul has now taken up the pen himself and begun to write this part. What about the rest of it? Didn't Paul write the rest of it? Well, yes and no. It was probably dictated by Paul, but someone else actually wrote it. That someone is what's called an amanuensis. An amanuensis. That's someone who dictates uh, or takes dictation of a letter or other documents. So think of a, a secretary or think of a stenographer in a court reporting situation. And this was actually Paul's typical practice. Right? It's something that I never knew growing up in church. I didn't know this until going off to seminary. But this is literally what Paul does probably in every single letter. Look at Romans 16. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And you, oh my gosh, I thought Paul wrote Romans. Now all of a sudden I'm reading about Tertius. Who wrote Romans? Well, how you answer that depends on what you're actually asking. Are you asking about the divine author? That's God. That's the Holy Spirit. Are you asking about the human author? Well, that's Paul in a sense. But you could also mean who actually put the pen or the stylus to the paper. That was actually Tertius. Tertius. So all three are actually correct, depending on what you mean. Paul's the one who's dictating it. Tertius is the one who's actually writing it. So who was the amanuensis that Paul used for 1 Corinthians? Probably a guy named Sosthenes. We saw him all the way back in verse 1. Notice this. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. That's probably a sign that Sosthenes is the one who's actually writing this out by hand. So Paul seems to have dictated the letter. And then at the end, he adds his own greeting. And he signs it as a confirmation that it's indeed from him. And next, he proclaims this curse on all who have no love for Christ. This probably, in its context, isn't referring uh, to obvious pagans, although that's true as well. Those who don't love and trust Jesus are under a curse. That's probably not what Paul is actually talking about. Rather, I think he's proclaiming a curse on those who are members of the church, those who profess faith in Christ, but they refuse to repent. Those who are members of the church there in, in Corinth, but who might continue to tolerate sexual immorality or continue to see temple prostitutes or continue to deny the resurrection or whatever it might be. Even after reading this letter, they refuse to repent. And this follows this common Jewish motif of curses and blessings. If you think back to the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy, Israel's about to enter the promised land and as they do, God proclaims this series of blessings and curses. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, curses for some and blessings for others. That's the reference to the grace of the Lord. When it says the grace of the Lord uh, be with you, that's the, uh, the blessing there. Now here's where we need to finish our opening story. All right, some of your kids are just now perking back up. My dad, the road ragist, all right. My dad turns into this neighborhood, outskirts of my hometown, he didn't want to lead, lead this psycho back to our house. And, uh, and so it's pretty empty. He 
finally finds a guy who's out in his front yard. My dad just slams it into his driveway, and uh, and the homeowner stares at him in you know confusion. And my dad yells, "There's a crazy guy chasing me!" All right. My dad might have said some other words, maybe some four letters. I don't know. But uh, at this point, the homeowner just runs into his house. All right. He knows what's up. That seems like a perfectly appropriate response, right? He apparently hadn't been meditating on uh, verse 13, be strong and be courageous and so forth. So he runs into this house. And uh, and meanwhile, the crazy guy who was just a little bit behind my dad, he guns it. He guns it, actually goes up in the neighbor's lawn and T-bones my dad's car, just slams right into uh, my dad's uh, car. But before the psycho can actually get out of his car and do whatever sort of mischief he wanted to do, the homeowner runs out of the house and he points a gun and a badge at, uh, at the window of this guy and he yells for the guy to get out of the car. The guy, in response, just revs the engine a couple of times and uh, uh, tells the cop polite, politely what he can do to himself. And then he throws it in reverse and he takes off. He knocks over a mailbox nearly hits the, uh, the cop in the process, all right? He's later arrested uh, in, uh, in Louisiana, which is about 30 minutes from where I live. Here's why I mentioned that. Obviously, my dad didn't know that this random homeowner was a police officer when he pulled into the drive. But he goes into his house, he grabs his badge, he grabs his gun, and when he comes back, that advent, that coming back, has these two instantaneous effects. In that moment, it greatly encourages and comforts my dad. Imagine of all the places he could have possibly go, gone, of all the houses in Baytown, he happens to find the home of a cop who happens to be home and happens to be outside at the time. So my dad is greatly encouraged as he sees this. He's wondering as this guy runs into the house, what in the world? This guy's just abandoned me. I'm about to get killed by this psycho. And so the, 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 the police officer coming out with a badge and a gun is greatly encouraging to him. But at the same time, that's greatly encouraging to my dad, this cop's sudden appearance greatly threatens, and I would imagine discourages this psycho. It's a blessing for the innocent, but it's a curse for the guilty. That's what's happening here in this passage. Notice that between the curse on all who uh, refuse to love Christ and, and the blessing, grace be with you, between those two is a phrase. There's a reference to the coming of Christ. The text reads Maranatha. You might have heard that word uh, before. That's an Aramaic phrase meaning our Lord come. The idea there is that his coming, his advent, is going to bring both judgment for some and then also blessing for others, which is uh, often how the prophets would speak of the day of the Lord. It's a day of wrath for some, and a day of salvation for others. You, you would find throughout prophetic literature that Israel would, would say, we're longing for, we're waiting for, we're hoping for the day of the Lord. And the prophet would say, I don't think you understand what you're actually asking. Because you're engaged in unrepentant idolatry and sin. And for you, the day of the Lord is not going to be a day of mercy. It's going to be a day of curse. So it's a day of salvation for those who are trusting in Yahweh, trusting in Christ, trusting in the triune God. It's a day of judgment for those who fail to heed that word. So those who read the words of this letter, those who read the words of this letter and find it to be sweet and encouraging and good and beautiful and and, and all of these sorts of things, there's blessing. But for those who reject it, 
those who find this letter to be archaic or outdated or sexist, misogynistic or oppressive or unjust or whatever it might be, there's a warning here. That day will be a day of distress. You're under a curse. Then as part of that blessing, he says, for those with ears to hear, grace be with you. Which is interestingly enough, that's how all of Paul's letters end. All of his letters begin with this call of grace and peace, and all of them end with grace. That's really uncommon in Greco-Roman literature. Generally in Greco-Roman literature, at the end you would just get a generic farewell. But not Paul. Instead, Paul uses grace as kind of the bookends for the book. He begins the letter with a call to grace, and he ends the letter with a call to grace. And in literature, that feature, that bookending feature, where you have one aspect here, one theme here, and the same theme here, is called an inclusio. In literary terms, that's what it's called. It's called an inclusio, like the word inclusion without the N on the end. An inclusio is this bookending feature that is intended to show you that everything in between those two bookends are somehow related to these two themes. That's what Paul is doing here. He opens with grace and he ends with grace, and we're intended to see by that that everything in between is grace. That is God's grace to us. When he says, grace be with you, part of what he means is 1 Corinthians be with you. This is God's grace to you. God speaking to you is grace. God doesn't have to speak to you. He doesn't have to speak to me. God doesn't have to reveal himself. He does have to reveal himself if we are going to be saved, if we're going to be changed, if we're going to be transformed. And so when it says, grace be with you, part of what he means is this book, Scripture itself, is God's grace to us. Knowing God's word, knowing God's will is grace. It's only grace that calls us out of sexual morality and calls us out of idolatry and calls us out of greed and envy and all the other themes that we've seen throughout 1 Corinthians. It's grace which uncovers our false beliefs. It's grace which confronts our false gods. It's grace which reveals our false hopes and our fears and our failures. Then he ends with this reminder yet again of the centrality of love. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. As God's word is grace to his people, so Paul's letters are an expression of his love for the church. So in light of that, I want to end this sermon where we began by telling you my hope. My hope for you, my hope for me, my hope for us is that we might heed these words that opened our time together. Look back at 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14, which says, be watchful, be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be steadfast, be immovable. Don't capitulate, don't drift, don't compromise. Act like men, be courageous. Stand against oppression and injustice and heresy and be strong and let all that you do be done in love. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I, I confess um, that although we might sometimes think it's filler, that there are um, inexhaustible depths here that we could just have, have spent an hour on, on one verse and, and not fully plumb the depths of, of what you're saying to us. And so I pray that you would help us to, uh, to heed the words of this book, that we might be men and women 
who are marked by uh, a vigilance and marked by a steadfastness and a strength and courage and more than anything, a love, a love for you and a love for others and that might drive us and compel us. So would you help us to have a vision? And as we kind of symbolically close this book, Lord, would you seal its words on our hearts and minds? We pray these things because you're good and you do good. So we ask in Christ's name, amen.